Hello, and welcome to The Practical Prophetic, where prophetic ministry is made practical. I'm Beth Wingate, I'm your host, and welcome to the podcast. In this episode of our podcast, we're going to highlight another moment in prophetic history. I'm a bit of a history buff, and I love the prophetic, and so this is a fun way to combine history and the prophetic, or the power of prophetic words throughout history. This time I'm going to focus on a political story uh, and the power of a prophetic word, how that someone can give a prophetic word that can have global consequences. And so many of you may or may not be aware of what Operation Nickelgrass is, but Operation Nickelgrass happened in 1973. And I just thought I would spend a few minutes telling you about this story. It's so fascinating to me. Um, I was actually not born yet. I was soon to be born, but not yet during this time in history. But it's just a fascinating story of the the power of a prophetic word and and just uh, how that can carry throughout someone's life and they can have their Esther moment, you know, that they could be placed in the right place at the right time for such a time as this. And so we see this uh, word and the power that it has and how it can be like an Esther moment. And this is a reminder to us to never underestimate the power of the prophetic. So let me give you some background first. Let's back up to 1967 and focus on the Six-Day War. So Israel uh, was sort of surrounded by the Arab nations, you know, post-World War II. They're in hostile territory. They're a fledgling nation. It's a miracle that Israel had become a nation again in 1948. And then in 1967, we see the Six-Day War, and it was a miraculous victory, and Israel ends up winning that war and gaining land. But As a result of that, there was a lot of instability in the region, uh, especially with uh, the people who were not happy with Israel being there. Let me sort of set the scene and come forward. I want to kind of go through this like a timeline. Well, in Munich in 1972 during the Olympics, um, the Olympic Israel, Israel's Olympic team was massacred. They were murdered by uh, what would become like the PLO. It was 11 Israeli athletes. It was a, a big debacle and all in the history. And so there was a lot of tension churning, you know, between uh, the Jews and the and the Arabs. And uh, we have a president in the, in the White House at this time, Richard Milhouse Nixon. And uh, this is where we're going to diverge a little bit and talk about Nixon and his history. And then we'll come back to our, our story. So, and some of you may have heard this story but actually because of some recently declassified documents we've actually just recently learned some new details about this whole story so I've done a little research and I'm excited to share this with you Uh, Nixon's mother let's stop and and look at Nixon's mother so her name was Hannah Milhouse Nixon she was born in 1885 in Indiana and she was a Quaker Uh, her family had been a long line of of Quakers, you know, and Quakers are known as pacifists. They're very passive, um, but very devout people. And Richard uh, Nixon often described his mother as a Quaker saint. So just to give you a tiny bit of history on the Quakers, you know, they were persecuted in England and they came to America when, you know, we were still a colony and they were not really well received by the Uh, Puritans, and so um, that they sort of 
were a small group, but they, they eventually grew. They're also known as the Society of Friends. They, they dress very plain, uh, kind of like an Amish-like um, like in, you know, very conservative. Uh, they do evangelize. Uh, they were, like I said, pacifists. A lot of Quakers would not participate in war or things like that. And um, the Quakers also uh, were a big part of the Underground Railroad. They they had uh, really turned against uh, any form of slavery and were, were leaders in that sense. So uh, very conservative people, uh, but very solid uh, as far as their theology to the best of what I've researched. And so uh, Hannah Nixon was raised Quaker, and she married a man who was Methodist. This would be Richard Nixon's father, who is Methodist. And uh, they he converted to Quaker, Quakerism. And uh, his father, Frank, uh, became part of their Quaker congregation, and Hannah was quoted as saying that the Nixon children received a religious upbringing in the Friends Sunday School, that they attended the Quaker Meeting House every Sunday. They prayed silently before each meal. The Quakers were big on silent prayer and silent services. Uh, they did not drink, gamble, swear. Um, in, the, in middle school, Richard Nixon played piano for their Sunday school services and sang in their church choir. And then later, he taught Sunday school throughout his undergraduate years at college. And um, he also said that he believed that the Bible was literal, even the miracles. He even was quoted as saying, even the whale story. And so the school that he later went to was also a Quaker-affiliated uh, school, uh, Whitaker College. Uh, but now I, I want to add this in here. So, so Richard Nixon, uh, his brother uh, would die in 1933 while he was at college. And he sort of goes through, he still believed in God and everything, but he sort of begins to, to hold his religion at arm's length at this point. Um, he, he sort of kept his Quakerism a little to the side. and um, but, he, but he believed in being in the military. Later, he would serve in the Navy in World War II. But we see him sort of become uh, adrift, I guess, if you will, away from his religious moorings, you know, his religious anchor. And um, and so as he moves out of his house and the, out from under the influence of his mother, we see him be impacted by his brother's death and drift a bit. So let's come back to the Yom Kippur War of 1973. So I'm going to sort of go with this like a timeline, and I'll try to keep this pretty short. Um, I know not everyone is interested in history the way I am, but I really have a great, great point I want to drive home here with the prophetic. So um, we're going to sort of focus in on the whole month of October, primarily up to about October uh, 15th. You know, So the first two weeks, this is largely going to take place over two weeks, although the war will actually last the whole month, roughly. Um, so let's start on October 6th, 1973. It's Yom Kippur, which is a holy day for the, for the Jewish people. And uh, the Arabs knew this. And so Egypt and Syria sort of have a surprise attack on Israel. In fact, it was absolutely a surprise attack. So they make this surprise attack on Yom Kippur. And you have to remember, you know, we're coming off the Sixth Day War in 1967, Munich in 1972. Tensions are still pretty hot. Um, so 
it's a two-front war. So you've got Egypt sort of on the southern end and Syria on their uh, western end, I'm sorry, eastern end. And so they're sort of coming at them from two directions. Now, the Egypt and Syria were being supplied by the Soviet Union. In a sense, this becomes a proxy war between America and the Soviet Union. You know, come, you know, we're sort of in the height of the Cold War as well. Things are really heating up in the Cold War. Uh, the Soviet Union had supplied them with 600 missile, surface-to-air missiles, 300 MiG fighters, those are fast, you know, jets, and 1,200 tanks, and then thousands of tons of more, you know, munitions and materials support you know materials so as soon as this happens um america is made aware so you uh, henry kissinger is our secretary of state he's also the national security advisor and he had been in his post now for two weeks so things are like converging all at once uh, as soon as uh, he hears about this he makes a moderate modest effort to sort of help israel but he was really a little indifferent to helping Israel. In fact, most of Nixon's cabinet is pretty indifferent to helping Israel. I think they felt like they didn't want to get dragged into a big Middle East war that, you know, there was so much turmoil in the Middle East that uh, they just didn't want to get involved. They sort of took a hands-off approach. So all of this goes down on October 6th. Let's fast forward to October 8th. So, so everybody's sort of just watching everything the first couple of days, and, and Israel's getting beat. On October 8th, uh, Israel's Prime Minister, Golda Meir, uh, basically calls for an assembly and begins to prepare their nuclear warheads. Uh, they put them into uh, some of their jets, and they begin to plan target, you know, target options. And they were sort of wanting the USA to hear this so that they would sort of urge us to help them. So on the night of October the 8th, um, Moshe Dayan, he's the guy that would wear the patch. Uh, he was uh, he was the hero of the 1967 war. In fact, um, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel now, was sort of his right-hand commando, his right-hand man. So uh, Moshe Dayan, on the night of October 8th, he he gets word and calls gold in my ear and 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 this is in quotes this is what's in the documents is he says this is the end of the third temple israel will not survive so she um she knows that she's never going to allow them to go through another holocaust so they begin to prepare for nuclear war um you know things are at absolute tension so the U.S. wants this war to stay conventional. They absolutely do not want any kind of nuclear bombs or missiles to be used, and they communicate this clearly to Israel. Uh, and so a few hours before they're planning, you know, nuclear war, they're instructed by the U.S. government, do not attack the Arabs first. Let them attack you, so to speak. You don't make the first move. You don't throw the first punch. In fact, uh, some of these newly unclassified documents, uh, Henry Kiss Kissinger is quoted as saying that if Israel attacked first, the United States would have not supplied Israel with, quote, so much as a nail. Okay, so all of this goes down on October 8th. The, the gold in my ear 
holds off on a preemptive nuclear strike on, on one of their, you know, enemies. And you can understand the frustration of the Israelis because, you know, they were attacked on the 6th. We're all the way up to day nine, and the Americans are just totally moving things slow. They're indifferent. There doesn't seem to be any response. Um, Kissinger, actually later, it was actually de declassified that uh, he had quoted on some of the record, White House recordings, let the Israelis bleed a little, and he was slow to respond. He, he just did not want to get dragged into a war, um, which is just um, just amazing how slow they were to respond. In fact, they were slow to even tell Nixon about the nuclear escalation. You know, Kissinger finds out in the middle of the night. He doesn't tell Nixon until three, three and a half hours later after Nixon comes into the Oval Office. Uh, and they said that Nixon had been drinking, that, you know, there was some concern. And you have to realize he's in the middle of Watergate. Uh, Spiro Agnew, his vice president, has just resigned. Uh, because he was uh, embroiled in some corruption, and um, you know Nixon, just things looked dire for him. It was not; it did not look good for him at all. And so he is—he's um, just embroiled in in a lot of his own personal problems as as this is going on. And Kissinger has largely been the one at the helm into this point. And so, um, we're, remember, we're at day. Uh, the, the ninth, we're at day three of this, you know, this whole affair. So, um, Golda Meir also, you know, reaches out to all her European allies for help. None of them offer help. No one, absolutely no one will help. Um, and so once Nixon is aware, he, he actually wants to help a little more. But, um, you know, just his whole, you have to remember, his whole cabinet is not on board with him. So it's a very interesting sort of thing that happens. So on the night of the October 9th, um, you know, and the, the U.S. is deciding to send a few things, but it's, it's not much, it, you know, they're, and they're wanting to route it so that basically covertly so that other people won't know that we're helping them. And so it's very limited help. And so the Israelis are out there on their own. They're getting beat. It's not looking good. Well, on the night of the ninth, uh, gold in my ear calls Nixon's private room on his personal line at three o'clock in the morning. Okay, this is where it gets very interesting and very prophetic. I hope you've stuck with me through the, through the history lesson part. So Nixon later said that he put on his robe and he sat at the foot of the bed while talking to Golda Meir. He said that Golda pled for his help, saying, if you do not help us, the Jewish people will not survive. Nixon said that as he was listening to Gold in My Ear, that her voice sounded like the voice of his mother. Remember Hannah, his, his Quaker mother that influenced him so much. Well, he said it reminded him of when his mother would read to him from the Old Testament about the heroes in the Bible. He remembered his mother telling him, Richard, Someday, you're going to be in a position where you can help save the Jewish people. And when that day comes, you must do everything in your power to help them. And he said that had stayed with him all of his life. And he said he realized in that moment, for the first time in his presidency, 
why he had become president of the United States. Oh my goodness, how powerful. His mother's prophetic word over him when he was a little boy, you know, came back to him. I mean, you can imagine, you know, they were probably sitting on the couch or laying, you know, her tucking him into bed at night, reading him stories. I can just picture, you know, she may have closed the Bible and looked at him and told him this, this prophetic word that one day you're going to help save the Jewish people. You know, I have to imagine, I wonder, you know, were they reading the book of Esther? Was this uh, you know, his destiny for such a time as this. So powerful. Uh, so, so he answered, he said, he, he replied, he said, Golda, what do you want? And she had a list and he sent everything she asked for. They, they mounted an operation called Operation Nickel Grass. And they, uh, it was the largest movement of armaments since World War II at that time. And they helped her. In fact, we will see that it goes down as the fastest turnaround victory in history. Um, Israel will push the Syrians to Damascus and the Egyptians all the way to Cairo. They'll destroy a thousand enemy tanks. In, in the Golan Heights alone. You know, Russia sent them 1,200 tanks. So it was basically all of the Russian tanks. But let me go back to the timeline because just because he had made the decision to follow through on the word his mother gave him, he met a ton of opposition. So let me tell you what happened. So this all happened on the night or the early hour, you know, early wee hours of the night. And so remember, remember his cabinet is not with him. In fact, later... We're going to find out that Kissinger and the Soviet ambassador really didn't want anyone to win. They were sort of, uh, they were sort of the big obstacles in, in this whole thing. Um, it's very interesting how, how everything comes together, uh, especially now that we have more information. So um, let's go back to the timeline here. On October 10th, he begins to put together Operation Nickel Grass, but he runs into problems. Uh, Nixon uses El Al Airlines, the Israeli airlines, but these are passenger planes. They can't haul tanks and trucks and, you know, these kinds of weapons. They can haul munitions, um, but they're very limited in what they can do, and there's just not enough of them. Also, there's an issue with logistics. Uh, so Nixon puts a plea out to all of his NATO allies, hey, we need somewhere where we can refuel, like a stopping halfway point, uh, in order to get these things to Israel. And his cabinet wants him to do it covertly on the sneak. And Nixon's like, no, I want to send them in. Well, the only country that will allow Nixon's Operation Nickel Grass to refuel becomes Portugal very interesting. So um, it takes a couple of days to get that going. So by October 12th, Nixon has had it. He said there's no more delays. He orders, I want anything that can fly to move these uh, munitions through Portugal onto Israel. In fact, uh, they have some of the tapes now. He, he ends up shouting at Kissinger and his staff. He basically, you know, they read off a list of things that they could send, and Nixon yelled at them, double it, 
now get the heck out of here he didn't say heck and get the job done he was really angry um, but he was grateful for Portugal in fact they use an old World War II base in Portugal and they have the people that they send from the military there sort of working around the clock sleeping in like World War II, World War II era like cots and they said it was just really a really busy month that you know they were there roughly 20 days um, so by the 13th things are finally moving and that seems to to be able to turn things in the favor of Israel. Israel now understands that with all of these things coming in they can use up whatever rockets and bullets they have because they know they're going to be resupplied. So by the 14th uh, the Battle of Sinai concluded in Israel's favor. So uh, Egypt was pretty much stopped. In fact, they, like I said, they push them all the way into Cairo. And then they focus on Syria. And as they're starting to turn the tide in Syria, then we have a huge hiccup. On the 17th, this is, uh, this is about 10, 11 days after the initial attack, OPEC comes out, all the Arab states and says we're shutting off the oil supply to Israel, America, and anybody that's helping them. So this is, you know, it leads to some huge problems. Um, we end up going into our oil crisis. My mom has told me before she remembers, you know, that you would have to line up to get gasoline and some stations would run out of gas and you just couldn't get fuel during this time. They just OPEC shut it off. And so uh, by the 24th, though, they sign a, sign a treaty, a treaty that holds, and, and everything is done. Uh, if we back up, though, to the day of the oil embargo, we find out that Kissinger and the Soviet ambassador are quoted as saying, um, my nightmare is a victory for either side. And then uh, the Soviet ambassador said, yes, it's not only your nightmare, but mine. And so... We just see this amazing obstacles to, to everything that's going on. Now you have to remember, like I said, you've got uh, Nixon's in the, uh, in, in the middle of his impeachment hearings. He's now got the oil crisis. He's trying to help Golda Meir to save Israel. His vice president has just resigned. His secretary of state has only been on the job for two weeks. And then his, uh, right in the middle of all of this, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General George Brown, uh, he, he has a big, you know, brouhaha because he had made some anti-Semitic statements. He, he had been basically going around saying that he, you know, that the U.S. military didn't need to help the Jews because they controlled the American banking system. And he was angry and he had said he wasn't going to, to help in Operation Nickel Grass. He, you know, he basically was defying the president. But here's the thing, you know. Nixon was such an unlikely candidate for the Lord to use him in this way. You know, he had some, some anti-Semitic leaning things. Although he loved Israel, he felt like that there was a lot of liberal, communist leaning Jewish people in America. In fact, just to give you a little history on how he rose to prominence in the Republican Party, it was during the McCarthy era. Era. He was a pretty staunch anti-communist, and so he became very skeptical 
of a lot of liberal, uh, especially like Eastern European Jews who had some communist leanings. And so that ended up playing in. And here Kissinger had over a dozen family members who were killed in the Holocaust. He was of Jewish descent. And you would think that Kissinger would have been the perfect person to save Israel. And you would have thought that Nixon would have stood in the way, but it was actually the opposite. But you know, it was his destiny. And that's where I want to kind of turn our conversation of history and talk about prophetic destiny. Oftentimes, when the Lord speaks to us prophetically, He sort of gives us the destination point. Let's just say you're going from A to Z. He gives us letter Z. He tells us where we're ultimately going to end up. But, you know, the, all the letters in between, the B, C, D, E, F, G, and so on, those are not always made clear to us. That's the part that has to become a faith walk. And I believe that when we are in the perfect will of God, when we're in right standing, not perfect, but in right standing, that means obeying the Lord, serving Him with all your heart, um, you know, that, that our steps become ordered by the Lord and we begin to walk out our destiny. And God is so gracious in His compassion and His graciousness, even when we make mistakes and we sort of get off the path, we can then enter into God's permissive will, which is always steering us back in to that perfect path. You know, uh, Nixon had moments in his life where he, after his brother died, he pushed, you know, sort of pushed religion away and held it at its arm's length. He, I think there was even, you know, some indication that he wanted to downplay his Quaker roots. And so he sort of put those things on the back burner. He was, he was not necessarily a very godly man. I know in the Nixon tapes, he uses a lot of language and um, he has a lot of critical things to say. He was, you know, from what I've read and researched, he was a pretty abrasive guy. And so, you know, it's just so interesting how that no matter you know, what his path was in life, that the, the one thing that really was his, his destiny was the word that his mother gave him, this prophetic word that one day, just like Esther, for such a time as this, he would be able to help the Jewish people. So how could she have possibly known that? Only the Holy Spirit revealed that to her. There's no way she could have known that. I, I don't even think she was saying that in an anecdotal way. You know, from the way he tells the story, it stuck with him because it was a serious moment. And, and it, I believe it was a rhema moment. It was anointed. So it carried that weight, that weightiness of a word that sticks with you. You know, I'm reminded of so many stories. I've, you know, grown up in church and had people tell me that, you know, they when they were very young, they felt called to preach and then they would go to college and maybe get away from the Lord. But then, you know, the Lord would work it. And then one day, you know, they would be in ministry. I'm reminded of so many stories like that. You know, in our last history uh, session, we talked about Amanda Berry Smith. You know, she was born into slavery and she went to one of these camp meetings, you know, a church revival camp meeting. And she later had a dream and she saw herself as, as the main speaker and singer at one of these camp meetings. And, you know, her life took all kinds of twists and turns. That seemed like an impossibility, but that's exactly what happened. In fact, she became one of the foundational missionaries 
in, in Iberia, Africa, Liberia, Africa, and she also became a foundational missionary in India. She became one of the largest evangelists, uh, you know, all over the world, all over Europe and America. And, she, you know, she when she had that dream, it seemed like an impossibility. But that was a prophetic dream, and that's how the Lord does things. You know, I have a personal story of, um, I'll just share it on here. My mom likes to share it, that when I was a small child, I was out by an oak tree and my mom was uh, cleaning and had the windows open. That was back in the days when ceiling fans, you know, were popular. And so we had the, you know, the screens on, but we had the windows open. And my mom said she heard me just talking and singing by this tree as if someone was there. And I think I was about, I don't know, five or six or seven years old. And she said that I came inside and she asked me who I was talking to. And I, she said, I sort of very matter-of-factly said, Jesus, you know, and she was like, oh, well, um, well, what were you talking about? And I told her that he asked me to sing for him. And she said, oh, well, what did you sing? And I told her, you know, Jesus loves me and some songs like that. And the, the Lord just sort of dropped in my mom's spirit, you know, to pay attention to that. And so she asked me, you know, well, what else did he say? And I said that he told me that one day I would sing for him. Well, let's fast forward. You know, I didn't try to self-fulfill this prophecy. Uh, we ended up at a church. Uh, it was actually Bruce and Marcia's church. And um, I sang in the choir there as a teenager, but nothing, you know, that stood out. Um, and it wasn't until I was married and in my 20s that I actually... Um, started playing guitar and singing in a Bible study that my mom had. But later I went on to sing in church, which for me was a big deal because I was nervous to sing and shy and things like that, insecure. And, um, and actually this year our church worship team put out a single and I, I was able to be a part of that. So that was exciting. You know, when I did, I fulfilled that. I didn't know how it would happen. I didn't go try to make it happen, but that was my prophetic destiny. And I know that there's value in that. And that was important to the Lord, important to me and my family. And so I, oftentimes the Lord will give us a prophetic dream or a prophetic word, just like Richard Nixon's mother. And so that word was his destiny. In fact, that was the whole purpose he had become president. You know, and I know he goes down in history, you know, within a year of, of, this, um, of this Yom Kippur war, Nixon will end up resigning because of Watergate. Uh, he resigns in August of 1974, so not even a full year had passed, and he ends up resigning. But he even said in later interviews that he had he had served his purpose and that his purpose was to save Israel. In fact, um, it's so interesting that the Jewish people often sort of look to Kissinger as the one that saved Israel. But Gold in My Ear has been quoted as saying that Nixon, uh, that she you know she revered him and considered him the one that saved. The, the Jewish people. And so she had just this, you know, she said um, that that they owe a debt to him. And so he, he will go down in history. You know, history will eventually always write itself. And so as more documents are declassified and everything, people see that that Nixon and, and the prophecy that his mother gave uh, was so instrumental to 
to the land of Israel and so the Holy Land. And so it's just so powerful. Just remember the, the power of a prophetic word. You know, when God puts uh, an anointed destiny on your life, you will fulfill it. You have a free will. You, you can choose not to. But, but God's destiny is so powerful. And so if you don't know what your future destiny is, if you've never had a word or a dream or, or some way that the Lord has shown you your destiny, I encourage you to pray and ask the Lord to, to give you uh, to give you your destiny. Um, you know, that's why it's so important to speak life over people. You know, I'm thinking of so many stories in the Bible where the Lord gave someone their destiny. You know, I just think of Joseph with his dream. You know, it seemed like an impossibility that he would be ruler over his brothers. And so, and I'm, I'm sure it seemed like an impossibility when he was in the pit. And who knew that that would lead to him being in the palace and fulfilling that destiny in his life. That was through a dream. And so I think of uh, David. You know, he was anointed to be the king, but um, as a shepherd boy, you know, it didn't seem that way. You know, his, his, when, when Samuel was going to anoint Jesse's sons, they had to, uh, you know, David wasn't even counted among them. They had to go find him. And so he was the least likely candidate. So I just want to encourage you to just remember as we look at history and we look at Operation Nickel Grass that the power of a prophetic word, that a prophetic word can carry so much power because I believe that a prophetic word is a rhema word and that is a word that the Holy Spirit has breathed life on. And if the Lord tells you something's going to happen, then you can take it to the bank. I hope you have a blessed week. I hope you enjoyed this moment in history with Operation Nickel Grass and that this was just sort of a neat way to look at prophetic destiny through the lens of history. If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button so next time I post, you will be informed. Thank you for listening. And also, if you would like to send me an email, you can do so at bethwingate at aim.com. That's Beth Wingate, B-E-T-H-W-I-N-G-A-T-E, at aim, A-I-M, dot com. Beth Wingate at aim.com. Once again, thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe and have a blessed day.